and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Marriage is a partnership in which each partner freely gives to the other that both may flourish. Executive Director of Family Transformation Jimmy Kim finishes the series by design with the second part of this sermon entitled God's Design for Marriage, which covers Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let's pray together now the prayer of illumination. Gracious Father, your word is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Through your spirit, give us spiritual ears to hear it, spiritual eyes to see it, spiritual taste to desire it, and spiritual hearts to receive it that we would not be fools, but wise. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This is a sermon that I've been working on for 17 years. I got that math right, honey, right? Um, 17 years, still working on it today. We'll be working on it long after we leave this place. My marriage is somehow both the most rewarding and the most frustrating thing I've ever done. At least that's what my wife tells me. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. Those of you who are married know, um, whether you're married or know a married couple, have been around married couples for any amount of time, know that marriage can seem one day like heaven on earth and other days, well, like hell on earth. And so here I get to come with the task to help us all, whether you may be Uh, Married or unmarried, happily married or unhappily married, whatever it may be. Uh, But instead of this being a time where you guys get to listen to 30 minutes of wisdom from Jimmy on my marriage, I I don't know if I could fill 30 minutes, first of all, and um, I don't know if that's wisdom that you want to hear. What we are called to do, what we are tasked to do is to come to God's word and we sit under it. 
We sit under God's word. We believe as a church that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word. And it gives us a perspective that may very well be at odds, direct odds with culture. But what we are confessing and what we are admitting and what we are submitting to all of us is that this is God's good word prescribed for us, for our good, for his glory. So then, we are in this series called By Design, where for the last several weeks, we've looked into God's design, not only for marriage, even for singleness, as well as for our own sexuality. So if this is your first foray into this, um, into this series, I encourage you highly, if you're online or with us here and you're visiting today, make sure you go back through previous weeks and listen to them and re-listen to them, in fact. I know that I've done that and have benefited from it. Uh, there's much that has been shared that is good for all of us. So what is God's design? Well, last week, Jeff pointed us to God, he, how he created Adam and Eve, and he created creation, specifically designed. And in that design, we see it designed for marriage, and that being one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. We've been doing this for the entirety of this series, and today I want to draw specific attention to Ephesians 5, the passage that we just read. But really, as we have done so this entire series, we're going to be looking back at Genesis 1 through 3. And when we talk about by design, well, we need to go back to when we saw this design first unfold, and that is in the creation account in Genesis 1 and through 3. So we're going to start there, because that's where we see God's design for marriage, as well as the fall of marriage. And that's my first point, the design and the fall of marriage. Quickly, on the design of marriage, right? God designed marriage with his glory and our good in mind. God created, right? He created all that he created each of the days. And what does it say in the text in Genesis 1? That he created and he saw that it was good. Upon creating Adam and Eve, he sees creation and then he calls it very good and then he rested why? Not why did he rest, but why did he call it good? Because he made it to his specifications, to his design, and he rested in it. He gloried in it. We see the first marriage. This was what Jeff was talking about last week. We see the father, God, bringing the woman, Eve, to Adam. In essence, we see the first marriage ceremony, the presentation of the bride, of the woman, to Adam, the husband, to the man. What was the purpose of this first marriage? Well, we see it very explicitly in Genesis 1:26 to fill the earth and subdue it. That's the command that they were given, both Adam and Eve together. What was their inspiration in their marriage? What was the object of their worship? Well, it was none other than God the Creator. He is the inspiration or the object of their worship, their own identity. What is their identity as a married couple? It wasn't each for the other necessarily, but it was the very image of God in them, right? That's how God created Adam and Eve in their, in his image, God says. And what is their collective joy? That they are together with God and with one another. There was no shame. 
If you were creating a soundtrack for Genesis 1 and 2, right, you could queue up Happy Together by the Turtles and call it a day. It'd be a nice, happy song, walk off into the sunset. If you don't know that song, you didn't watch The Wonder Years or you born well after 1980. Happy Together by the Turtles. You'll recognize it if you listen to it. The old timers in this room know. I include myself. I got a woohoo. That's great. But we know that the story doesn't end there, right? It goes on. Genesis chapter 3 happens. There's more than just two chapters in Genesis. And Genesis chapter 3, historically known, is the fall of mankind. But we also see the fall of marriage in these verses. That crafty snake, the serpent, the devil comes in and he confuses, he deceives. Right? This is the part of the movie, if you're like me, you can't bear it because of the music and the cinematography, the lighting, the, 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 the dialogue, and you just know something bad is going to happen, and you're saying, oh no, oh no. What does Satan do? He turns to Eve, and he says, did God really say, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any of these trees? When in fact, what God really told them in Genesis 2.16 said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. So you see how Satan twisted the words. It may not have been entirely a lie, but it was enough of a lie to ruin them. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. What do we see in Genesis 3? There is worry Right? The concern is that we will eat it and we will die and we will become like God. Adam and Eve were already like him. They were made in his very image. Eve entertains the serpent and reaches for the fruit. And if you are a good follower of the narrative, you should be asking one question. Where is Adam? Where is that man? It's not unlike my parents when they would yell out at me. Yeah, where are you? Come here. Right? They don't know where I am because I'm either I'm hiding. Usually I was in front of the refrigerator finding something to eat. Or in front of the television. Right? Why would they yell out? They knew where I was. They should have just come over there to me. But this is God. We should be asking, where is Adam? Where is Adam in this passage? How come he's not there with Eve? Aha, well, he is there, Genesis 3, 6. She also gave some as she reached for that fruit. She gave it to her husband who was with her the entire time. And he ate. He did nothing. He did nothing to protect Eve. He did nothing to lead or be the head over Eve here. Instead, he passively, willingly went along and did nothing. So if you're a good researcher, if you're a good epidemiologist and you've been looking for patient zero as to why our marriages are filled with lots of difficulty, we'll look no further than Genesis chapter 3. Here we see shame and fear enter into the picture, right? We see the worst game of hide and seek ever. Genesis 3, 8, man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. How? They went among the trees Right? This is no different than any of us who have had young children or who have young children and play hide and seek with them. Right? And this is true of my own kids, and they would hide behind sheer curtains, mind you. 
Oh, I wonder where you are. Adam and Eve tried to hide from the presence of the Lord because they were shamed. They were afraid. Things that were not present before in the garden. In fact, the very trees that were meant to give life by their fruit, they tried to hide amongst them. That's not going to save them. And then they play the blame game with each other. Adam says, well, it's this woman that you, God, put here with me. And then what does he say? Well, it's this serpent that, that was here, and he deceived me. So God, really, it's your fault. The blame game. Shame. Fear. Also, we see that the very thing that they were created for, right, the mandate, the, the command that they were given to fill the earth and subdue it now becomes the bane of their existence. Childbearing becomes literally laborious, child-rearing, strenuous. And we see this in the very next chapter with Cain and Abel. We see that work will be hard. Their hands will develop calluses. Their backs will break under the work and the strain. Their sweat will fill their brow eventually till death. These were things not present before this deception. And now here they are. Now, more specifically, to the man and to the woman, to Adam, he was designated as leader, as advocate, you could argue, as prophet, as priest, as king. But he was diminished because of this sinfulness to passivity. And not just passivity, and we see this in the history of humanity. We see an abuse, an outright abuse of their headship, of their leadership. Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. Now, what about the woman? She was designated as a helper, no less made in the image of God, but with a different role as a helpmate. And we'll get more on this later. But she was diminished to then desire for the man. And you might initially think, well, desire for the man, men might be thinking, well, how is that so bad? I want someone to desire me, not this way you don't. And what it means here is that Eve desired the place of the man, the position of the man, the headship of the man. The ESV study Bible says Eve will have sinful desire to oppose Adam, to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. Again, I, I called us to this, right? As challenging as sometimes this wording can be and what the context of this message can be, we have to submit to God's word here. And God had designed with an intentional purpose, an intentional design in mind, and that it was Adam was to lead. Leave Eve, you are to be his helper, not the other way around, and not a distorted view of those views. The ESV study Bible in Genesis 3 also says this. Thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage, driven by the sinful behavior of both and rebellion against their respective God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. How many of you are familiar with the hasty generalization fallacy? Some of you, I'm sure, right? The hasty generalization fallacy would, would say this, right? We can give it this example. I once ate at Taco Bell, 
not a preposterous hypothesis for me, and my tummy didn't get, feel so great afterwards. Therefore, all Taco Bell will make your stomach hurt always, right? That's an overgeneralization, a hasty generalization. And you might be tempted then to say here in this passage, well, if this is what marriage now looks like, initially designed for good, but marred by the fall and now is very broken, should we then never seek marriage? And the answer is no. And the reason why is because throughout the rest of scripture, we see very clearly how God relates to his people. And you know what the illustration is? Marriage. And you know how he talks about marriage? That he will redeem it. He will redeem the institution of marriage and he will give the best picture of marriage possible. That is between he and his people. So, a point of application. Before you start blaming your partner for this, that, and the other, accuse the accuser. We live in a broken world. And I'm not saying that there's a devil behind everything, right? The devil made me do it, right? But what I am saying is that we have to recognize that we live in a very broken, broken world, and we ourselves are broken, broken people. The enemy took a beautiful design and marred it. Yet again, this is still the picture that God uses to describe his relationship with his people. Before you blame your partner also, keep in mind Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Why do you see the speck in your spouse's eye, but, not, but do not notice the log that is coming out of your own eye? Why are we so able or readily able to apply that in relationships outside of marriage. In fact, we would probably do the opposite of what this passage says, and we would say, I see the speck in your eye, and I'm calling it out, right? One spouse may say to the other, while ignoring the log coming out of both of them. A bit of practical marriage wisdom here from Shanti and Jeff Felton, who I'll mention again later. Keep this in mind. I, I mentioned some of the, the, the disastrous effects of the fall in the garden for Adam and Eve. Well, one of the things that happened in the, in the woman is this insecurity, both in the woman and both in the man, but this insecurity for the woman specifically that asked the question, am I even lovable? Am I special? Am I worthy of being loved for who I am? That's a great insecurity. Insecurity. Similarly, men would say, am I able? Am I adequate? Am I capable? Am I good at what I do? The fall dropped those little insecurities in and what a, an effect it has on marriages. Notice that the common actions of the happiest marriages, Shanti and Jeff Wright, is that the wife and the husband are regularly positively speaking into those insecurities. So that they're not just pointing out, I see this in you and I want you to know that you should feel insecure about this. That's not what I mean or what Jeff and Shanti mean when they talk about their speaking into the insecurity. They're addressing it and saying, you know what, wife, you are lovable, and I love you so much. I'm so lucky I get to be married to you. You are special, 
And yes, we might be arguing. We might be at odds at this moment, but together, God is moving us to a place together to be in harmony with one another and with him. Wives would say then to their husbands, I see you and I see what you've done and it is good. Thank you. Yes, you are able. Yes, you are adequate. Yes, you are good at what you do and not saying it in a condescending way. Even myself, as I say it, I'm cautioning myself from saying it in a condescending way because that is my natural posture because of the fall. So if we're not to give up on marriage and we need to have another example, and that's my second point, the counterculturalness of marriage And how do we see this? How do we achieve this? How do we get to this? Well, we have to make a couple of observations, both in how we see marriage today and then also how we see marriage redeemed in Scripture through Jesus Christ. So some characteristics of marriage today. The centrality of the individual, I think, is one of the primary things that we notice about marriage out in culture and even in the church. Have I found the one? Am I the lovable one? Can I love him? Can I love her? Right? We, we, want, we want to reduce it down to the individual. And I'd be remiss here if I did not mention something about social media and how that has plagued so many relationships, not just marriage relationships, but even a proper view of self. Listen to, to this here. Social media is feeding of the idol of approval of other image bearers has led us to believe in the perfect or ideal man or woman, the ideal body type, ideal marriage, ideal sexual fulfillment, feeding our idols or our lusts, last time I checked, was never a good idea. The singularity of the ideal and disgust for the intentionally designed diversity of God's creation has led us to where we are. I think the wording of that phrase is too good, so I don't think it was a journal entry of mine. I'm pretty sure I got that from somewhere else. I just failed to write down where I got it from. So that's kind of like a half quote with no reference. I'm sorry. It was good enough to write down, not good enough to write down the name of. Let me say that one more time. Last time I checked, it was never a good idea to feed our idols of self. And what So often does social media do. Let me give you a picture how you need to look. Let me give you an idea of how you need to be. And if you don't match up to this, if you don't compare to this, well, guess what, honey? You are less than. Guess what, brother? You are less than. That is a lie. A lie from that crafty serpent. Also, we need to be careful of a consumer mindset when it comes to marriage. We see this so, so often in marriages today out in culture. And again, unfortunately, even in the church. Tim Keller says this in the meaning of marriage. Today, we see, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. We run a cost-benefit analysis of our relationships When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and we drop the relationship. What a dangerous, dangerous way to look at marriage. No wonder we see so much brokenness and so much disdain, even for the word marriage in culture today. 
A third observation about marriage today is that, again, similar to the individuality, we see this independence, independence in marriage. We, we hear this tone of, of I got to be true to myself, and we can be two separate and, you know, in one marriage. And so long as I'm getting my needs met and he or she's getting her, his or her needs met, we can coexist I don't really need my spouse anymore. I have it for other purposes, right? It's, it goes back to this contract or this consumer mentality. You may be familiar with a song from the Broadway musical, Annie, Get Your Gun. Or maybe not. I know that's pretty obscure as a reference. The song is, anything you can do, I can do better. There was a Gatorade commercial as well back in the 90s with Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm. I think they just re-shot the commercial with Usain Bolt and Abby Wambach. Anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you can do, I can do better than you. And first of all, let me be clear and say this. This is not a commentary on a woman's inabilities. No, as compared to men. Absolutely not. Rather, it's the shared attitude of one-upsmanship. No wonder so many marriages we see are broken and longing for something else. What is the longing of something else? A higher, better example of marriage. And I believe it's a marriage redeemed that we see in and through Christ Jesus himself. And so what are some characteristics of marriages that are redeemed? And this idea of a a redeemed marriage institution. Well, first and foremost, it's the centrality of Christ, the centeredness of Christ. Because without Christ at the center of the marriage, there is no heart of selfless love. There is no example of selfless love. Without Christ as the foundation of the marriage, there's no firm foundation upon which to build or would stand against the inevitable trials that will come through marriage. And without the honor and glory of Christ as the goal and hope of marriage, there's nothing of substance that will truly give us any sense of satisfaction. Christ must be central. Christ is in the work, is about the business of redeeming the idea of marriages as well as marriages that are here present in this room. Another characteristic, rather than a consumer mindset, is a covenantal mindset, right? Those of you who maybe have been married more recently and you remember more, more fondly or more freshly your premarital counseling will know that it's not a contract that you're entering into, but rather you're entering into a covenant together with your spouse. spouse. This is at the heart of the vows of Christian, uh, Christians who marry one another. The last time you went to a wedding, undoubtedly you saw a husband and a wife or a bride and a groom and a minister gathered before God, Right? in front of many witnesses or a handful of witnesses, and they share vows to one another to have, to hold, to keep, right? Through through thick and through thin, through through life and through death, so on and so forth. It's a covenant that they enter into, one to another, but also together before God. They covenant a promise, a commitment, more than just a contract, more than just this idea of what I can consume. And also interdependence as opposed to independence. 
In the marriage union, husbands and wives are to complete one another. To use another 90s reference, Jerry Maguire, when she says, you complete me. Or no, he says to her, you complete me. As uncomfortable as that might make you feel, because it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, because, yeah, it just feels too hokey. There is a truth to it. That wives complete their husbands and husbands complete their wives because that is how God designed it to be. God, remember, when he created Adam, what did he say in Genesis 2? It is not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? He creates Eve out of Adam. He doesn't leave Adam alone. He doesn't leave Eve alone. But together they complete one another. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about love and marriage? It's a redeemed picture of love that we see in Christ Jesus himself. Again, Keller, in The Meaning of Marriage, he writes this. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give, to give of yourself to someone, how much you are willing to lose for the sake of this other person, how much of your freedom you are willing to forsake, how much of your precious time and emotion and resources are you willing to invest in this other person. This is hard. Husbands and wives in this room are looking at one another saying, yeah, that's what we got to do, but that is hard. You're not going to be able to do it under your own strength or power. This is why we must, we must run to Jesus. We must run to the gospel, to this son of God, who he himself, though was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather, what did he do? He took on the nature of a servant, and he submitted himself, though he was very nature God. There's a game that I play called GeoGuessr, and it's a game, I think it's a lot of fun, where the computer drops a, a, a pin on Google Maps somewhere in the world, and you got to figure out where that pin is, right? Based on the silence in this room and the reaction in this room, I might be the only one who enjoys that kind of stuff. But hey, I've lived my whole life that way, so I'm used to it. GeoGuessr. You might think to yourself, well, how could that be fun? Well, part of the fun is just realizing how fast you can quickly begin to discern where that pin drop is. Because you pick up on the signs. You see, you know what? They're driving on a different side of the road than here in America. You know what? There's a different language on the signage. The people on the side of the road that are walking, they look more this way than that way. The trees, the plants, the flowers, the weather, it looks like it might be here. Oh, of course, obviously, you might see landmarks like a big tower in the middle of the city. That's pretty hard to miss, right? I don't know how many times, like on GeoGuessr, they give Paris as an example. It's like, duh, that's Paris, right? <laughs> Just, if you get the game, you'll see how many times Paris shows up. <laughs> that's my one gripe about the game. But what I'm getting at is this. There, is, there are signs that you can pick up on. And just like that with our marriages, I hope, I pray that there are signs of redeemed marriages in the marriages in this room. Signs that point to a centeredness on Christ. Signs that point to a covenant reminder. Signs that point to an interdependence on one another and husbands completing wives and wives completing husbands. This is what the world needs to see. Church, 
Let us move toward that. And I know, I know it is hard. If you want more practical tips, there's no shortage of them. You're just not going to get them in this sermon. We're about to go somewhere really hard. So let me give you a couple of real quick practical tips. Marriage equipping, October 3rd, Monday evening with Chanti and Jeff Feldheim. Save the time in your calendars now. Find a way to get some childcare. I think we're going to have some childcare here as well. We're working to do whatever we can to make it as easy as possible for you, husbands and wives, and uh, to, to be here and join us for that evening. I, I assure you, it will be a time of great equipping and encouragement, both for husbands and wives together. Also, this book list that we've been showing and have showed, it's out in our bookstore. Uh, I encourage you. Uh, I've already quoted a couple of times from Meaning of Marriage, another book that's on there, Each for the Other, incredibly, incredibly helpful uh, as I was preparing this message from uh, Brian and Kathy Chapel. One other quick place I already know that I uh, kind of threw social media under the bus. I think there are some redeeming aspects of it, especially when it does give you encouragement and you can find good gospel-centered, Christ-pointing wisdom. You can get it from accounts like you follow uh, through family life, family life blended, through wind-shaped marriage, focus on the family. These are places where their job and their goal and their social media campaigns is to make sure they are encouraging redeemed marriages, Christ-centered marriages. It starts somewhere, husbands, and it starts somewhere, wives. So together, can we make those small steps toward redeemed marriages in Christ? So lastly, my third and final point, the hope of marriage into our passage here in Ephesians chapter five. And you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. There is not enough time to do this passage justice. But we're gonna try. Before we even get into verse 22, verse 21, let us not miss this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the heart, the root of submission, that this dreaded S word. And it's something that all in the church are supposed to do is to submit to Christ. And if you look several verses earlier, how do you submit to Christ? And Paul is very clear. He, he says, you need to be filled with the Spirit. There is no amount of you doing good things and morally good things and right things that will get you to submit to Christ. You need to be filled with the Spirit. The only way to reverse the curse, to right the wrong of Genesis 3, is to go back to Christ himself. And what does Christ promise? He promises redemption. He also promises his spirit and for us to be filled with it. So a charge to wives. In Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, don't get me wrong. This Paul is not saying in everything. Just do whatever your husband says. That's not what Paul is getting at. Paul is getting at this. In terms of the, the, the calling of the husband and wife together, again, remember, this is a commentary on Genesis 3 that we see here in Ephesians 5. 
So it's a reversal of what we saw happen, what, what went down in Genesis 3. So if now, because of the fall, Eve's desire is for the man, it makes sense why Paul would say then, wives, submit to the husband, because it's a reversal of the curse, the way that it should have been, the way that God had initially designed it. Now, submission does not mean suppression. It does not mean that wives and women are second-class citizens. It doesn't mean that they are inferior or less than. This is a long quote. I don't have it for the screens, but listen to this. It comes even from our very own journey curriculum here that we so often use in our discipleship groups. Let us be perfectly clear in repetition that neither Paul nor the rest of Scripture teaches a masculine superiority and feminine inferiority. The account of the woman's creation in Genesis 2 makes it clear that Eve was a partner uniquely suited to complete Adam. In terms of inherent value, she was in every way his equal. In terms of function, she was everything that he was not, and thus the two together, one. Jesus was in no way inferior to the Father, yet he is, an ontolo- he is ontologically equal to the Father. That is, they are the same in power, substance, and glory. And yet Jesus, who claimed to be one with the Father, voluntarily submitted himself so that he was functionally subject to the Father. So also a wife is on equal ground with her husband as far as the personal worth and significance are concerned. When it says submit women and wives, it doesn't mean you are less than. This is Paul's getting back to the original design of husband and wife. Remember the occasion for this letter. It was written to Christians in the church for their edification, to be filled with the Spirit and to submit to Christ. Let's right the wrong. So what is really the charge here is not so much submit to your husbands. The charge is wives, be like Jesus. Similarly then, the call to husbands, the charge to husbands in verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Yes, the charge here may say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But similarly to the women, to the wives, the call is the same. Husbands, Be like Jesus. It's of note. It's noteworthy that there's three times more content here Paul gives to the husbands than he does to Eve or to women and to wives. Verse 31 of Ephesians 5 is an explicit reference back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's, it's as if Paul is dotting very firmly with his pen, saying, if you missed it so far, don't miss it now. I'm writing this because this is a reversal. Jesus, in Jesus, he reverses the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3, which in and of itself was a broken design. It was the design, rather, that was broken because of the fall. So husbands and wives together, your charge is similar. 
be like Jesus. Now together, together, what charge is there? Right? We, are, we know that we are to be witnesses to this world, providing a picture of love and maybe not always romantic, though that might be present, but a picture of love of God to his creation. Right, Jonathan, John 3, 16. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not die but have everlasting life. We are to be witnesses to the world as individuals, but also together giving a hope of a love that is to come and that can be achieved here. Remember, reference points that point to a greater thing. In each for the other, Brian Chapel writes this. The love of Christ expressed between parents as husband and wife also, notice this, is the most powerful instrument for multiplying Christ's love through our families. Spiritually healthy marriages are God's primary means of producing spiritually healthy children. As we represent Christ to one another, he becomes real in our homes, dear to our children and powerful in the lives of our families or in the lives our families touch. That may not happen 100% of the time, but the call is clear for us as husbands and wives. Together, let us faithfully steward, run our families, knowing at the end of the day, it's in God's hands. It's hard because we live in a broken, broken world. I'm rather excited that I get to do this, not on my own, but that I have a spouse and a partner to do that with, and I get to do that also in community as a church together. This is why also is not just a call to only husbands and wives, but to all who wait. To all of us who wait, we anticipate a greater thing. Some of us might be called to marriage here on this earth and some of us not. Some of us have been married for a time and just a time. Some of us married for a time to one and maybe again to another. But the charge to all of us as followers of Christ is similar. Jesus, our bridegroom, is coming back to redeem us. Revelation 19 Picking up in verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. Something awesome is about to happen. Crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Give him the glory for what? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You guys are smart people. I think you see it. Genesis 3, we had an illicit meal. A very broken, sinful bite. In Revelation 19, we're invited to a table to a wedding feast. What we saw broken and marred in Genesis 3, we see completely fulfilled as Christ unites with her bride, the church. These bookends of scripture point us to something greater and we prayed it in our prayer of illumination. 
Give us a taste for this. And that's what we get to do shortly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would draw us to you. And as hard, as hard as it is to live for you in the world that we live in, with personalities that might conflict and disagreements that may come up, Lord, we pray for our marriages, Lord, that they would be centered on you and centered on commitment and, and covenant mostly that your love is covenanted to us through Jesus, your son. And what a picture of that we get to see in the day to come, but also in this glimpse at this table. Be with your church, we pray, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.